We return to the book of Acts. We turn to chapter 14 this evening. And we're going to, or excuse me, chapter 13. I think I said 14. We're starting with verse 14. Acts chapter 13, verse 14 is our text for this evening. Now, I do want to point out to you two things. Verse 35 is really the main verse I want to look at, but the context will relate to it. It's kind of a con comment, a passing comment on the context. The other thing I want to say is we're, we're going to want to pay attention. I'll go back and I'll look at the other verses that are Psalms that are being quoted. I do want to recognize there's a lot of other Old Testament things being quoted, and we should recognize that and see as Jesus says, the law of Moses, the Psalms, the prophets all speak of me. They're all about me. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. And the New Testament is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of these things. So we recognize him. That's what's happening in, in this sermon. There's a string of sermons in 13. Or there's a, there's a lot of missionary movement, different places and some sermons. So I, I really would like to go through all of it. But we're going to go verses 14 to 41. And what we're focusing on tonight is what I want to look at together with you tonight is how the Psalms are being quoted. I'm not really going to focus a lot on how each Psalm is being quoted and applied in its context. I might briefly touch on it, but the, really what I simply want to look at tonight is how they keep quoting the Psalms. And in particular, it even says, and another psalm. And I, I want you to get that effect and feel that because we are exclusive psalm singers in this church. And there's a reason for that. I won't go through all of the reasons tonight, but I will review some things from class. The main thing I just want us to, want to impress upon us tonight is look how often they quote the psalms about Jesus. That's the main thing we're looking at tonight. It's as simple as that. Certainly, I'll make it more complicated with lots of detail. But that's what I want you to get out of this. Just get a feel for how much the psalms are quoted. Okay? They sing of Jesus. So hear now the word of the Lord, Acts 13, verses 14 through 41. But, uh, excuse me, uh, but when they departed, and that's Paul and others with him, but when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people, of Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that, he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years unto Samuel, the prophet. And afterward, they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming, the baptist of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John fulfilled his course, he said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. 
And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that, he raised him up from the dead now, no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore, he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he, when God raised again, saw no, but he whom God raised again, saw no corruption. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, the believing, the singing, preaching, the responding to his holy word. When we keep quoting the same book, maybe the same movie, it shows that we've read it a lot or we've watched it a lot. It kind of happens, you know, movies or books we like a lot. We read them often again and again, and we kind of just... You know, people who have done the same can even finish our quote for us. It's just we give ourselves to it a lot. That's why it's memorized. And when we keep singing the same songs, it's because we sing them a lot and the words come naturally to us. And again, we can start singing certain songs and everybody starts to sing in one, one joke I've seen in a couple different movies. I don't know if you can relate to this, but uh, I think Texans can. The stars at night are big and bright and all the Texans... Deep in the heart of Texas. No, I'm just for fun. The example of the, they can feel the song. They have it. They know it. They know what to do. That's what happens with songs that we are really familiar with. And this is why they keep quoting the Psalms in our chapter section, in all of Acts, and all the Gospels, and all the pastoral letters. The Psalms are quoted more than anything else in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to prove Christ. Even more than Isaiah. Even more than Deuteronomy. To prove Christ. The Psalms are God's songbook that he wrote. It's in the center there in the Old Testament. It is to sing to him. They almost all of them say, sing, praise to God. They're all there saying to sing of Jesus. God wrote them. They're all about Jesus. And I, I want to focus on the part of verse 35 tonight where it says, Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, and then he quotes Psalm 2-7. But it's actually the first part of the verse I'm really looking at tonight with the context in view. Another psalm. Now it isn't that he is, he's only quoting the Psalms, he's quoting much of the other parts of the Old Testament prophets. But so many of the Psalms written by God to worship him sing directly of Christ in the Old Testament and prove him to be the Messiah. I give you to that as the main idea of the text. And of course, it's in that latter part of his sermon that is speaking about the resurrection and proving, therefore, he has to be the Messiah because of his resurrection. So many of the Psalms written by God to worship him sing directly of Christ in the Old Testament and prove him to be the Messiah. Now, as you know, I was consulting some of my books, blowing the dust off in my office, and one of them is about the Messiah in the Psalms, and the author is making the argument every single Psalm is about Jesus. 
Uh, we'll, th we'll think about what, he, what Jesus says in Luke in a moment about that, but all the scriptures about Jesus, but some of them are just so clearly and particularly messianic and prophetic of Christ being our prophet, priest, and king. Again, we're focusing on verse 35. Let me read that for you again. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. And here he is quoting Psalm 2, verse uh, 7. Oh, excuse me. Um, that's no, excuse me. I jumped ahead to my notes. Here he's quoting Psalm 16, verse 10. And I, I misspoke earlier, I think, too. Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Verse 35 is quoting Psalm 16, verse 10. And it's talking about the fact that Jesus was not left in the grave, but he rose from the dead. And again, he's quoting this to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, because they all knew he was raised from the dead. Therefore, he had to be the Messiah of the Jews in the Old Testament, because that's what David said would happen. So we've already heard this with this psalm quoted. Back in Acts chapter 2, 25 to 28, I'll just summarize for you. Peter is preaching to the Jews in particular at Pentecost, and he wants to prove that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he quotes Psalm 16, verse 10, and following verses in a lot more detail. He preaches the significance of a lot more. But what he says is David knew in Psalm 16 that he was a prophet. And he knew what he was saying in Psalm 16 was about Jesus Christ. And he knew that he was saying Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. And Peter says, you are all eyewitnesses. You've all seen that Jesus is raised from the dead. Therefore, he's the Messiah that we've been waiting for. Why is that important? Because he's the one that will save us, send us to heaven instead of hell if we believe in him. So Paul's making the same argument here. Verse 35, he's quoting Psalm 16, verse 10. Now, back to where I intended to be, another psalm. Look at verse 33. No, excuse me, I, I'm sorry. I think uh, this is a sign I was struggling to get all my, all my notes together. Uh, another psalm, well, no, he's referring to, that's what I want to highlight, another psalm. He says another psalm in verse 35, but that's because another psalm had already been quoted, and that's where I want to go with you. Psalm, uh, verse 33 here. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, and that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm. So this is what you sang tonight. Psalm 2, verse 7 is now being quoted in verse 33. Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. So I apologize. I was, uh, I've often been called I should be a doctor. I can't read my own handwriting. And here I was a little distracted by my own notes. But the point I want to make is verse 35 is quoting Psalm 1610, as Peter already did earlier in Acts chapter 2. But he says another psalm. And that's what I want to emphasize. Another psalm, because he already quoted uh, Psalm 2 verse 7 in verse 33. Now look at verse 34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. So here in verse 34, it's another Old Testament kind of a quote, almost an illusion. And it's first really having in view Isaiah 55 verse 3. However, like a lot of Psalms that go back and think of other t texts, it's also being alluded to. That Isaiah 55 verse 3 is, a, is being alluded to in Psalm 89 verses 33 to 36. That Psalm is significantly about the Davidic covenant. I will give you the sure mercies of David. So verse 34 has an allusion also to Psalm 89, 33, 36. Now earlier in another sermon, he quotes a psalm as well. Look back to verse 22. Same chapter, but a different sermon because there's a lot of different stops and goes in different sermons and, and different groups of people here. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. And there's an allusion there to Psalm 89, verse 20. Now look at verse 23. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Notice so much about the resurrection again. That, verse 23, is referencing Psalm 132, verse 11. 
Now, as you and I read through these things in our devotions and things, we're, we're going to pick up that there's Old Testament allusions as well as the quotations, but we may not recognize how many of these are the Psalms. Now, again, this is another sermon, but recognize the two sermons together, how often they're quoting the Psalms. So many Psalms, all witnessing to Jesus. And what is the message of the Psalms? Yes, with the prophets of well. What is the message? Verses 38 and 39. And by him, by him of whom the Psalms sing, by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware there. Oh, excuse me. I want to start with verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Be justified alone in Christ. Have forgiveness of sins in Christ. He's preaching Christ to them. Christ is the fulfillment. He's the one that the Old Testament was pointing to. And while there are prophets quoted, look how many times another psalm is quoted to prove Jesus. Why? Because they sing of Jesus. And what did they sing in the Bible? What did the Jews sing in worship? They only sang the psalms. They sang the psalms so they would know these words. They'd be so familiar being raised up on singing the psalms and that's what their worship is in the synagogues now uh, the psalms are speaking of singing of Jesus that's particularly it would seem to me why they're quoting them because they have them memorized on their hearts so oh yeah oh yeah their hearts would respond right away and resonate to Jesus because they've been singing about Jesus all my life Yes, clearly he is the one risen from the dead of Psalm 16. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is with a few men and they didn't recognize who he was. They were concerned. Haven't you heard? Jesus is dead. We were hoping in him to be the savior of Israel. And he walks from a, with them for a while and they don't recognize him. And then when he breaks bread with them to have fellowship. He opens their eyes that they can see. By the way, that's an important thing to remember. We saw that, that thought in one of Elder Renner's recent notes to remember, pray for the Lord to open the eyes of people. Unless he does, they won't see him right there in front of him in the scriptures, nor in the Psalms, I think we can say. But he opens their eyes, and it says in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, did you notice it came up a couple times in what we've read in Acts 13? They're in the synagogues. They're reading the law and the prophets. And he actually says to them, what you are reading, you have fulfilled in killing him. You should have recognized it's him, but you killed him. And, of course, that's what we've seen in a lot where we've been in the Gospels lately. But notice all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, the things about himself are all the scriptures. But then in particular, verse 44 of Luke 24. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Do you see how highly exalted the Psalms are right next to the law and the prophets? Basically the whole Old Testament. We see the Psalms, how much they are identified of speaking of Jesus and because of what they are singing of Jesus. They're all about Jesus. Walter Kaiser says it is safe to conclude that there are approximately 300 formal citations in the New Testament from the Old Testament. In addition to an almost incalculable influence on the language, modes of expression and thought in the New Testament. What he's saying is besides the direct quotations, there are so many allusions. As you know, your Old Testament, you recognize, oh, he's he's thinking of this part, but he doesn't quote it directly. But directly quote quoted citations of the Old Testament and the New. He estimates about 300. Think about that number. Think about that number and then think about this. 
Consider the magnitude of the Psalms are most of that 300 in the New Testament. Most of what's quoted of the old and the new are the Psalms to prove Jesus. The RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, its book of psalms for singing. And by the way, we have many of them in our, in our closet in the back, the burgundy ones. We presently use the comprehensive Psalter. The RPCGA uses the red ones, which is, which is the metrical psalms of David, uh, the old Scottish Psalter. But the RPCNA's book of psalms for singing, in the back it has an index. It's called Psalms Quoted in the New Testament. Just the Psalms quoted in the New Testament. And it just lists them. Here's the Psalm. Here's where it's quoted. And sometimes it's more than one place. Here's the Psalm. Here's where it's quoted. It goes through all the Psalms. And it, it didn't tally them for me. So but double check my work. But I went through. Just quote. And I counted them all. And according to my count, which I think is pretty close if it's not right, 228 times. Now, how many times does Walter Kaiser says something in the Old Testament is quoted in the New? 300? And 228 of them are the Psalms. So I see a majority of what they're quoting, not only, but the Psalms are primary to prove Jesus. Why? Because they're all speaking about Jesus. And again, what are they actually doing? They're all singing about Jesus. I was raised to barely understand that the Psalms were songs. I never thought about it. It's kind of crazy when you think about how much it says to sing. But it's a songbook written by God. Boom, right there in the Bible. Singing of Jesus, not just speaking of him. Because again, when you sing, you really learn and own and memorize, right? That's why a lot of advertisements are songs. And I think I can go through with you and come up with all kinds of things like, I don't know, probably the young kids won't remember. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid. I mean, it just, boom, it's there, you know? I, I can think of a lot of others if I stop, but then I won't start. Or if I start, but then I won't stop. But you get the idea. that It's called echoic retention, by the way, the advertising. It's what gets in the brain and makes it stick there. There's, an, there's a special aspect of auditory, which is why they pay a lot of money to have radio. Because it gets in there in a way a lot of other things don't. So singing the songs, which of course is why Satan is very active in the entertainment industry, isn't he? And so many songs on the radio ought not to be listened to, but they're coming out of the mouths of our children. You know, it struck me, uh, you know, I guess the famous lady singer, I don't have to name her, you know who I'm talking about. She's got a boyfriend now in football, right? So now all these young ladies are buying football jerseys if they don't know what they're doing. But, but it occurred to me, I've, I've learned a little bit about the kind of things she sings. And I, I've learned a bit about the kind of language she uses. Unapologetically. And I thought to myself, how are dads bringing their young girls to this? And you see the girl, they're screaming and crying over it. They have all the songs memorized. But that shows you again the power of song. The Psalms are songs to sing about Jesus. They're all about Jesus and they help us know Jesus. And that's why they're quoted. Another Psalm is what we see in our sermon. And another Psalm. And they would know them. It would be compelling. It would be striking. Let me get back to the RPCNA's book of Psalms for singing. Again, the index at the very end, Psalms quoted in the New Testament. I encourage you, feel free to take a look. We have them in our library too, but I have some in my office and we have them in our home. But feel free to take a look at them in the closet behind you tonight and turn back and look at that and just look at it quickly and be impressed. It's like, whoa, that's a lot. I need some time to go through all that. And that's what I want us to be impressed upon tonight. Look at Jesus in the Psalms everywhere. Another one. So what about the book of Acts? I, I counted. I look for all the times one of the Psalms is qu uh, quoted in the book of Acts. And I, I double checked and I, I adjusted it by one digit. I think I got it right. If not, I'm close. Check my work. For, feel free. But it looks to me by that index, 24 times in the book of Acts alone, the Psalms are quoted. In all of these sermons to prove Jesus and to trust in Jesus to be saved by him. He is the Messiah. The Psalms were singing of to prepare us for when he comes. Psalm 2 that you sang tonight is once in our text quoted. Uh, I had noted how many times, but I think I deleted it by mistake. I think it's seven times. Uh, two different parts, so I'll have to fix that. Psalm 110 
Verse 1 is quoted uh, 14 times. Verse uh, 4 is quoted four times. So a total of 18 times Psalm 110 is quoted. And of course, uh, the letter to the Hebrews is quoting four often, right? Thou art a priest forever out of the uh, order of Melchizedek to prove that the Levitical priesthood was typifying him, but he's of the tribe of Judah and Melchizedek of Genesis 14 prefigured him. Psalm 110 sings of him. Verse 1 also sings of him. Similar words to Psalm 2-7. But 18 times just Psalm 110 in the New Testament. Think about that. If you just sing and really know Psalm 110 well, what you'll see as you read through the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, but especially Hebrews. You go through Hebrews and you know Psalm 110 4 in its context related to Genesis 14. You know, I, I, I don't have any begrudging of my own life growing up, but I find myself, I can't believe we didn't get to sing the Psalms. Look at how much I've missed. Look at how much I don't have as a, as a foundation for understanding the New Testament. And I'm thankful that my children do. God helping us. As I was looking for answers on how much it's quoted in the New, I also found this brief website page called Seeing the Psalms Across the New Testament uh, by Accordance Bible Software. And it happens to be that's what I use uh, for my work. I used to use uh, BibleWorks, but my computer software couldn't keep up with it. They closed. Um, but it's uh, Accordance Bible Software. And he used it to do a survey. Let's look at how many times the Psalms are in the New Testament. Let me share a few things from that article. He says, first, the New Testament contains more than 100 quotations from the Psalms. With two small exceptions, every New Testament writer draws from the beloved hymn book of God's chosen people. First of all, notice what does he call the Psalter? The beloved hymn book of God's chosen people. What did he say in his sermons in Acts 13 tonight? God chose and made the Israelites who they were. The beloved hymn book of God's chosen people. He says other than two books in the New Testament, every single one quotes the Psalms. And, of course, we know especially what is the New Testament about? The arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior. He goes on to write this, and I, I say he, uh, D. Sanford at AccordanceBible.com. I didn't have time to try to figure out his full name. Uh, he writes this, in the opening line of the New Testament, Matthew declares that Jesus is the son of David and then uses 15 quotations from the Psalms to prove his Messiahship. Do you remember when we went through Matthew, how many times he's saying, thus was fulfilled, thus was fulfilled about Jesus. And in Matthew, in the beginning, the opening lines, Jesus is the son of David. And then he goes to prove that 15 quotations from the Psalms to prove the Messiahship of Christ. Would you think to go to the Psalms 15 times to prove the Messiahship of Christ? We should think of it. We should be singing them and be able to just say, oh, yeah, I can sing them, right? The Lord unto my Lord hath said, sit thou at my right hand. Yeah. He goes on to say, Mark follows suit with 10 more quotations from the Psalms about Jesus. In Luke's gospel, you find the Psalms absolutely everywhere. You go through Luke. Now, where are we? The book of Acts is what? Book two of Dr. Luke's work. The book of Luke is book one. The follow-up is part two, the book of Acts. And in the book of Luke, it says the Psalms are everywhere. And so no surprise we're seeing that here in the New Testament. Now, how does Luke open the gospel of Luke? Very similar to how he opens the book of Acts. How? I've got a bunch of eyewitnesses carefully put together all of this information and testimony to prove to you that you can be certain that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior. And one of the ways he really wants to drive it home is Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalms, the Psalms. Why would that be compelling to the Jews, especially? Because they sang it to worship God it prepared them to recognize the Messiah, which is, again, the point of quoting them. You know that psalm we sing? You know what it says there about the Messiah? There's Jesus. He's risen from the dead. Psalm 16, for instance. Psalm 2, 7. See? It's Jesus. He's the one. He's here. 
And he doesn't have to get them to know the Psalms. They know them. They sing them. He's recalling quickly to their echoic retention and hopefully the Holy Spirit to see and believe it's Jesus. He's here. Look. Uh, back to the Accordance article. Just a few notes that he shares. He says, Jesus himself draws from the Psalms frequently and with authority to teach the people. And remember again at the end of Luke, Luke 24, he says the Psalms, the prophets, the, uh, the prophets, the law, the Psalms, they all speak of me. Lastly, the Accordance article says, uh, lastly, what I'm quoting from it, the good news of Jesus Christ is almost unintelligible apart from the Psalms. Did you hear that? You almost can't even understand the gospel. You almost can't understand the New Testament if you don't know the Psalms. Let me read the full quote. The good news of Jesus Christ is almost unintelligible apart from the Psalms. By the way, he goes on to say you can sing other things. Of course, I don't agree with him, but he's not, he's not arguing for exclusive psalmody that you can only sing the Psalms, which is what our church does represent, because that's the history of all the church back to the New Testament times. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he's not making that point, and yet he recognizes you can barely know Jesus if you don't know the Psalms. And how do you know the Psalms particularly well? Sing them. Memorize them by singing, knowing them. He goes on to say, so is the history of the early church. Jesus, his mother, his disciples, they all demonstrate a profound love and knowledge of the Psalter. So, beloved, in the New Testament, you are commanded to still sing of Jesus in the Psalms. And only the Psalms. I'll give you two scriptures and we'll break them down a little bit. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 18 to 20 and verse 19 in particular is what we'll focus on. Ephesians 18 to 20, 5, 18 to 20, especially verse 19. I'll read it for you. And be not drunk with wine where is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, how will you be filled with the Spirit? He says, speaking to your, by, who, wrote the, who wrote the Bible, by the way, the Holy Spirit, we know, Peter says. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to read Colossians 3.16, so I'm going to wait to explain what these three words mean. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I'm going to explain that in a moment. But what I do want to point out here, related to the other thing, a cappella, no instruments, because of of what's been fulfilled in the Old Testament by the Holy Spirit, it says making melody in your heart. The making melody in the Greek is literally plucking the strings, plucking the strings of your heart. Your heart, your mouth, you are the instrument of praise. After all, in the New Testament, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the joy of the Holy Spirit, represented in the instruments in the Old Testament, which, by the way, they stopped after the sacrifice of the animals, then they kept singing. So it's tied to the blood sacrifices that are fulfilled in Christ, the instruments. But that's another message to give more attention to. You can listen in our membership class online to review why we sing a cappella. I'm focusing on why we sing exclusive psalmody related to this. Now, this is not so much to argue perfectly the, 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 uh, why we sing psalms uh, alone. What I do want to do is impress upon you. Look at how much they're quoting them. Why do you think that is? Because that's what they sang. I just want to impress upon you the singing of psalms is a given and an understood. Because look how constantly they're quoting the psalms to prove Jesus. He says they're all about him. Colossians 3.16 is the other main text of what you're supposed to do in the New Testament. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Well, how do we do that? How do we have the word of Christ dwelling within us? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. So Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16 say, sing the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, that is not sing psalms written by God and sing hymns of the old traditional church, which give me a break. It's a couple hundred years, right? The, the church is much older than that, several thousand, right? And uh, it's not talking about spiritual songs. It's not sp talking about contemporary worship. What's it talking about? It's three references to the Psalter in the Old Testament. That is absolutely what he's referring to. Sections of the Psalter. 
I want to review with you some things I shared in our membership class, the special class on exclusive psalmody, why we sing the psalms, just to further impress and deepen our appreciation for what we see Paul and earlier Peter doing in their sermons. Every time they were preaching, almost always, they're expanding upon the psalms to prove Jesus so that they trust in him and be saved and forgiven of their sins. I don't know that any Christian, even pastors, tend to think I'm going to try to preach Jesus and I'm going to do it with the Psalms. But that's their primary place they go to. The first thing I want to say is this is a command. It's not an option. Sing the Psalms, hymn, spiritual songs. We have need to know what he's talking about. It's a command. I want to say this. Avoid anachronism. I'm going to explain. By the way, I am giving you the abbreviated notes. You can go to the class to get more of them. Avoid anachronism. What is anachronism? Anachronism is reading into something from your reference point and thinking and reading it in, in, in a way of eisegesis rather than exegesis, reading into the text what you think is there being discussed when that is not the reference point of the author. Okay, so when you hear psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you might think the psalms, most people would understand he means the psalms. Man, at least if everyone understood that, why don't we have psalms in most churches for worship? At least one third of our worship. They're crowded out by the man-made hymns, and that's what people think the next thing is. Oh, the hymns. Paul is not thinking about amazing grace when he says this. There were not hymns. I'll give you more in a moment. They didn't have anything in the church until the 1800s that was other than the Psalms, except for some heretical stuff that we'll talk about. Paul's not thinking about anything but the Psalms. When he says Psalms and hymns and then spiritual songs, he's not thinking about the song Days of Elijah. Or think of some modern tune that, you know, he's not thinking as much as I like the song and have quoted in sermons. He's not talking about, uh, you know, the goodness of God. So he's not referring to anything like that. We read into that because that's are things we're familiar with. But that's not what he's, he has no reference point. That is not anything that he would be thinking about. Didn't exist. So what's he talking about? He's talking about sections of the Psalter. Let me explain. In the Jewish mind, Paul was paraphrastically saying. Paraphrastically means saying in kind of a repetitive way, representing and emphasizing the whole. He was saying to sing the Psalter. Each of those words being titles of psalm sections found in the Old Testament Psalter, as well as each being a designation in the Psalter. So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs are words you find in the psalms. Speaking of titles and speaking of parts, that's all stuff in the Psalms. That's what he's thinking of. Notice that's what he quotes. He doesn't quote some man-made hymn. He doesn't quote some, what we might think of for a spiritual song. He's quoting the Psalms. They are all parts of the Psalms. And he knows what he's talking about. And he knows his people knows what he's talking about. The problem is we don't tend to know what he's talking about because we're ignorant because we haven't been taught this in our churches, sadly, for a few hundred years. But most of the church's history has been taught that, and that's the only thing they did. I, I partly bear this out because people tend to refer, uh, respond to our psalm-singing churches like we're cults or something. You know, oh, that's a new weird thing. No, it isn't. The new weird thing is to get rid of the psalms and sing things written by men. Paul's talking about the Psalter. Now, what is known in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, it has these Greek words from Colossians and Ephesians, Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, as headings for different parts of Psalms within the Old Testament Psalter. A, select, a collection of scripture brought together to sing in corporate worship. You know, we could if we had a way of thinking through how to do it. We don't even need a separate Psalter. All we have to do is open to the Psalms and we could sing it together. You know, it's helpful to have it in a metrical way, uh, sometimes with some rhyme. But, you know, for instance, a lot of times when we're going to sing part of Psalm 19, uh, the church has the history of it. I've tried to learn it pretty well, but the law of the Lord is good, right? And then we go, um, converting the soul, by the way, right? And then it goes on, more to be desired are they than gold, more than much fine gold, right? Sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. Sorry, I'm going through it quickly, but the point of it is we could just go right there and do that. And we've done that. Sometimes we don't go to this altar and say, hey, let's just turn right to Psalm 19 and we'll sing that together. And we usually do repeat the refrain through the verses of it. 
But the point of it is, that's what it is. That's what Paul is referring to. More technically, let me summarize that from John Brown's preface to the Psalms of David in meter. So if you go to our library and you see the blue Psalters, it's kind of the more traditional packaging of the old Scottish Psalter. It's not the only one, but John Brown, an old writer, has the preface to it explaining why we should be singing the Psalms. I'm pretty sure we have that in PDF form linked to or a website link on our website related to why we sing the Psalms, among many other resources. But let me quote from the preface to John Brown's, John Brown's preface to the Psalms of David and Meter. And he says this. It's a little more technical, but i just like to give it to you for effect. Summarizing what I've just told you. The Holy Ghost hath under the New, the New Testament, plainly directed us to use thereof. That is the Psalms, the Psalter. Colossians 3.16, Ephesians 5.19 is what he refers to. So in his introduction to the old Scottish Psalter, he says the Holy Ghost has told us this is what we should be singing. The two scriptures I gave you in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. He goes on to say, the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs there recommended are plainly the same with the Miss Morim, Tehillim, and Shirim mentioned in the Hebrew titles of David's Psalms, 3, 4, 5, etc., 145, 120, 134. And he's giving references of where you can find those phrases in the Psalms, the Psalter. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs are all parts of the Psalter, the Psalms in the Old Testament. All those words are there. That's what Paul's reference is. He's saying, sing the Psalter. Now, how, wh wh what for? So that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly. Again, spiritual songs is not thinking of what we might think of some song written by someone who thinks they're inspired by the Spirit. It literally means songs written by the Holy Spirit. Spiritual songs is not saying something that feels spiritual. It says it means written by the Holy Spirit. Well, the Psalter is the only thing that fits thy cri that criteria. And it comes down to the term of the Reformation, sola scriptura. Only the Bible, the Bible alone. They're quoting the Psalms to prove Christ alone, saved by Christ alone here in our text tonight. You know, I, I, I've shared with you before, but I remember before I was convicted uh, or converted, you might say, uh, the, the, the pump was primed. I went to RP, the RPCNA seminary and uh, worked there for years as well. Uh, and it was in chapel and around a lot of RP churches and my travels for work for the seminary. So I was around it a lot, family and church worship and really warmed up to it. I'd never really studied it as much, but I had heard some arguments. You know what really convinced me that just sort of made it open like, duh. You know, I came over to acapella later. I studied a book on that. I can reference it. But Pastor Terry Johnson in uh, I think it's First Presbyterian Church. I think that's what it's called. Forgive me. Uh, Independent Presbyterian Church, which is ironic, that name, right? Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia, which, by the way, if you ever get a chance to go to Savannah, Georgia, it is beautiful. Just beautiful. Spanish moss, cobblestone streets, just don't get too close to the river. I was there for a seminary trip, actually. I was training, and I walked down, oh, it's so beautiful. What's that sign say? Please don't feed the alligators. Whoa! I didn't know there were alligators, you know. So I'm there, and then I, I go to present at the church while I'm there, maximizing the trip. I present on behalf of the seminary, this big, beautiful, and it was one of those churches that had the high, the high uh, pulpit. You had to climb up the stairs. I didn't do that, but, you know, they had the high pulpit. And anyways, uh, I'm giving the presentation, but uh, one of the other times in Sabbath class, I attended Pastor Terry Johnson's class, and he was teaching on the five solas of the Reformation. Wasn't that many of us? He probably doesn't know how significant a role he played in my life. And he simply was talking about sola scriptura that day. He says, you know, the reformers, they were getting back to the scriptures, getting back to understand how we do everything, not just justification by faith alone, but so much of worship needed to be reformed. Get all of this Roman Catholic stuff out of here. It's too much like the temple. It has nothing to do with New Testament worship. And he says, you know, John Calvin goes to Strasbourg and he learns from Martin Butzer to sing the Psalms. He said, because the reformers said, well, sola scriptura. We read the word, we pray the word, we preach the word. Well, we've got to sing. 
the word. Oh, look, there's the Psalms. That's a pretty simple, logical thing to think about. God made in the Bible the book of Psalms to sing to him, which Jesus says, all sing of me, which is why Paul's preaching many times the Psalms, quoting them and another Psalm. Verse 35 tonight. Sola Scriptura, including our singing. Now, I, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to get into a lot of other things I want to. But, you know, one of the dangers of, uh, you know, it just comes down to the regulative principle of worship. We do what God wants. We don't add or take away from it, right? But there's also dangers in singing things that are written by men. First of all, they can't claim, however they may want to say they're inspired, they can't say it's Holy Spirit. The Word of God is done. Well, you know, there's a certain hymn that people just love, and I used to love it too, until it came to my attention, not by my own first recognizing it, but others. That's clearly teaching heresy, as it's drawing on from something in Philippians that is a heresy about Jesus. We love to sing it, but it's heresy. You're not going to have that with God's perfect word. I want to share a few other things from membership class related to this. The class, the special class on exclusive psalmody. Just to back up what we're recognizing, why they're drawing on the psalms so much. They all speak of him and another psalm to prove Jesus is the Savior. Believe in him. Be forgiven. Be saved. He's the Messiah. He's resurrected. He's clearly, therefore, the Messiah as the psalms prophesied. But let me give you a little bit of church history here again, because, again, people think this is some kind of newfangled thing. You know, where do you get this idea of only singing the psalms, you crazy people? Get back to the old hymns and maybe some contemporary worship tunes. No, actually, we, we haven't ever left what the church has always done. And that's what I want you to be reminded about as well. Because what you're hearing right now is the church. It's the early New Testament church. And they're appealing to, because they sang still, the psalms. The word of God. They sang Sola Scriptura, the book of Psalms that were written in the Scriptura for singing. Let me give you some church history about singing the Psalms. The Old Testament church sang the Psalms only. The New Testament church sang the Psalms only. Now, as much as this may feel like a lot of detail and long, I'm breezing through stuff. And I remind you, we have a lot of articles and books I reference for you in membership class and on our website if you want to drill down. So I'm not trying to prove all this. You can go read these things or watch these things. During the post-apostolic period, there were no hymns in the church, only psalms. So after the Bible was done, there were no songs except the psalms sing, sung in the early church. This is a historical fact. I'll quote a few things from Bushel on this, from his book, The Songs of Zion. Heretics like the Gnostics, the Arians, and the Donatists, the latter, if not heretics, certainly not orthodox, began to introduce songs other than the Psalms. Did you catch that? The heretics who didn't like the doctrine of the church, orthodox doctrine, they started to try to corrupt the doctrine of the church through man-made songs to push their doctrines, their false doctrines. Wanted to steer away from the Psalms written by God and go with these man-made hymns to push their false doctrines. The introduction of uninspired hymns, meaning non-Psalms from the Bible, was a so slow process and it was not widespread until the 4th century. It's only in the 4th century that it's common to see other things than the Psalms. The Synod of Laodicea, A.D. 343, and the Council of Chalcedon, A.D. 451, opposed uninspired hymns. They explicitly made these church decisions forbidding the singing of anything other than the Psalms, the inspired songs of God. The Council of Braga, 561 A.D., decreed hymns not to be used in worship, which the Council of Toledo in 589 repeated and endorsed. Again, many official church declarations not to sing anything but the Psalms. Psalm singing deteriorated in the Middle Ages. Sound familiar? So did justification by faith alone. So did all the gospel. That's why we needed the Reformation against the Catholic Church. Psalm singing with all the other important things went away, deteriorated. They were preserved in the monasteries. 
Wycliffe and Huss, the morning stars, so to speak, of the Reformation, they reintroduced singing the Psalms into the churches. They brought it back. Sola Scriptura, the Reformation is always going back. Semper Reformata means keep reforming, keep finding out what we lost and get it back. And the early reformers, the predecessors to Luther and others, they reintroduced the singing of the Psalms because they knew they'd been lost. The Protestant Reformation particularly brought back psalm singing. And this is something we need to recognize. The Protestant Reformation didn't just bring us tulip, didn't just bring us the five solas, which are nice, neat summaries that aren't, weren't really that neat in how it all developed. They brought back the proper worship of the church and government of the church. And that included the regulative principle and the singing of psalms only and, for the most part, a cappella. Psalm singing was known as the, quote, signature of Puritanism. The Puritans only sang the Psalms. It was a signature, something particularly known about them. What is the name of our church? Puritan Reformed Presbyterian Church. You have a long heritage of all of church history. The Puritans were all about getting out the Catholic worship in the English church getting back the reformed worship that the continent had rediscovered, but the English church had preserved too much of the Roman Catholic nonsense in worship. And so the Puritans are about singing purely God's word, meant to sing the Psalms. G.I. Williamson writes, it will be observed that the confession does not acknowledge the legitimacy of the use of modern hymns in the worship of God. You can turn to the larger catechism 21.5. Uh, actually, I think that should be the confession of faith. I better check that. Uh, but rather only the Psalms of the Old Testament. G.I. Williamson, in his very important work explaining the confession of faith, which is what we have as our standards, our statement of faith, he acknowledges there's nothing in it that acknowledges anything else as legitimate except singing the Psalms. Now, that's very important for many of our Presbyterian and Reformed brothers to pay attention to. Anybody who's using the Westminster Standards, although the American one kind of dumbs down some things, but it's really clear that the confession is only thinking of the Psalms when it talks about worship, singing, which is why it's the only thing they talk about when they talk about singing, the singing of Psalms. They, they literally say the singing of Psalms. They don't countenance anything else. Horton Davies notes, in Switzerland, this is his book, Worship of the English Puritans, in Switzerland the Fr uh, and France during the Reformation, under the influences of John Calvin, there was an outburst of metrical psalmody. Everybody starts singing the psalms. In this, the followers of Calvin remain true to their criterion of Reformation according to the word of God, sola scriptura. The Puritans, therefore, confined themselves to the psalmody until the 18th century. It's the 18th century. Where this, and it wasn't just Presbyterians, by the way. It's the 18th century where people start introducing other things and the psalms start to be put into the back. But beloved Christ is everywhere in the psalms, as we've seen. They are the most quoted Old Testament reference in the New Testament to prove Jesus is the Messiah. Why? Again, they speak of Christ and is what they worship with, so they would be particularly familiar with them and have many memorized. Singing memorizes. In particular, certain psalms are quoted often of Jesus, particularly Messianic, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 16. 2 and 16 are quoted alone within our chapter. Um, 22, 40, 45, 110. Those are just some that are explicitly quoted about Christ in the New Testament. Now, John Calvin, the great reformer, he produced the Geneva Psalter. It was required by him to return to Geneva. Remember, he went to Geneva the first time. William Farrell convinced him to come. He didn't want to. He wanted to just go be a professor. I don't want to be a pastor. It's too hard. Let me go be a professor and study. Uh, William Farrell called on the, him the curses of God if he wouldn't take the call in Geneva. And that scared Calvin, and he took the call. But after a little while, because of his reform, they kicked him out. Shot guns outside his house, sick dogs on him. He's like, I'm gone. I'm out of here. Went to Strasbourg. He didn't want to come back. William Farrell convinced him to come back. And again scared him if he didn't do what would so he he reluctantly comes back and as you heard in a recent sabbath class video he opens right back up to isaiah where he had left off three years ago but one of the things he required to return was the singing of psalms only 
and they acquiesce because this is happening everywhere during the Reformation. I want to point out to you that Psalm 100 in our Psalter, the tune is called the Old 100th, right? All people that on earth do dwell sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Well, today, most of the church only knows that tune with praise God from whom all blessings flow. And they don't know the tune is called the old 100th. Why? Because it was from the Geneva Psalter. It's they're borrowing it. It was for Psalm 100. Leave it with Psalm 100. <laughs> Talks a lot about his mercy. Did you know that the very first book that was printed in America in 1640 was the Bay Psalter? The very first book printed in America was the Psalter. The Westminster Assembly, who produced our Westminster Standards, they also produced a metrical Psalter. Only with the 150 Psalms. And it was later revised in Scotland and became the Scottish Psalter of 1650. Our comprehensive Psalter, the red ones in your pews, is that Psalter with various new tunes. My understanding is our denomination is uh, uh, working on a new updated version of it that will have the music go under each line of text, which is very helpful, more like the RP Psalter. But it'll be the same words. Matthew Windsor has an article proving that the Westminster Confession of Faith, when it refers to the singing of psalms, intended only psalm singing for worship for confessional churches. Now, again, that's something that Presbyterians really need to pay attention to. Our Westminster standards only are acknowledging as legitimate the singing of psalms. The phrase singing of psalms is the only thing. It doesn't say psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. It says the psalms, understanding that's what Paul means. And they developed a psalter to use. And you're still singing it today. I want to encourage you also, when you sing the psalms, you're singing the songs of worship of the old church of much of its history. But think about the Protestant reformers. You're singing also often those same tunes with those same words as they're put together for us. It's tremendous to think about connection to all of the church of history. But when you're singing the psalms, you're going back to the New Testament church. You're going back to the Old Testament church, let alone Regular principle, this is what God requires. But think of the connection you have with the church throughout all the ages, singing God's inspired Psalter that he wrote to sing and worship him, that sing of Jesus, that bring you to Jesus, that give you an opportunity to witness to Jesus who is risen from the dead. So, beloved, when you sing the Psalms, you sing about Jesus. They are all about Jesus. And in ways that hymns and contemporary praise as we know them today do not give you the depth and fullness of. As one of you said in Sabbath class today, thankful for singing the Psalms because of the depth that's there, let alone it's the word of God. And praise the Lord, it was a young woman that said that. Keep these scriptures in view for this study. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. Psalm 95 verse 2. Sing unto him. Sing psalms unto him. Talk of ye of all his wondrous works. Psalm 105, verse 2. So when someone says to you, as they have to me, they only want to sing man-made hymns. They really want the hymns. They really want the contemporary praise songs, the human, uninspired hymns. They want to want to say it that way, but in contradistinction to the Psalms of the Bible, these are uninspired human hymns and praise songs. When they say they want to, they usually say, because I really want to sing about Jesus. And at first, that might make you feel like horrible. Do you want to sing about Jesus? We don't sing about Jesus. Then you bring them to this chapter alone, Acts 13. Another psalm. Why? Because that's what God wrote to sing and what they sang. And it's all about Jesus. It's proving Jesus. It's calling them to faith in the Lord Jesus. 
Help them see their ignorance kindly, but help them sing their, see their ignorance when they think they can't sing the, sing the Psalms because they don't, in their mind, sing about Jesus. That is the absolute opposite of what you see in the book of Acts, let alone the whole New Testament, let alone all of the scriptures, let alone most of church history, especially the Protestant Reformation. Rather, we should say, please don't take the Psalms away from me. I want to sing about Jesus. Help them recognize what they're missing, that they don't know about Jesus. What they don't know about him when they do not sing the Psalms. And how much they miss of what they're reading in the New Testament when they don't understand those are Psalms being quoted. And in their context and how they're being applied, all that it's teaching us about Jesus who says, The prophets and the law and the Psalms are all about me. And may many Reformed churches at least be inclusive Psalm singers. A well-meaning Reformed pastor said to me recently, oh, you guys are psalm singers. And really what he should say is exclusive psalm singers. Because his own hymnal has psalms in it. Sadly, nobody sings them. That's what happens when we put man's things in. We push out God and his word. Always. But the Reformation is sola scriptura. At least, wouldn't you want to say that you are psalm singers, just inclusive? But what happens is they're not even inclusive very often. But my encouragement will be to such, well, I hope you'll at least be inclusive psalm singers. We can talk about why it should be exclusive another time, but just go to Acts 13 alone to see why you should be leading your people to know the psalms so that they know Jesus and they know how to sing about him. God said in Christ's baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And at the Mount Hear him. Beloved, hear of Jesus and hear of him leading you singing the Psalms. Psalm 22, verse 22. Hebrews 2, verse 12 says that's Jesus speaking about leading you singing in the congregation. Psalm 40, verse 6 and following. Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7 says that's Jesus speaking. A body hast thou prepared for me. That's Jesus speaking in the psalm. You're singing not only about Jesus, you're singing the words of Jesus. And such as in Psalm 22, you're singing with Jesus as he's leading you singing in the congregation. Be assured and be encouraged that when you sing the psalms, you are singing about Jesus. And sing the psalms. Because the Psalms sing of Jesus. And that is the message for you tonight. As we look at what Paul says in verse 35 and another Psalm. Looking at the Psalms he's quoted in that sermon and the sermon before and the Psalms he quotes afterwards in that sermon. Looking back to Peter and all the Psalms. It's almost all Psalms that they're quoting and they're teaching from because that's what they sang. And they're saying, you sing those Psalms. Jesus is raised from the dead. Those psalms singing about the Messiah are singing about Jesus. Trust and believe in him raised from the dead and be saved. Or as he applies it again in verse 38 and 39, as he preaches the psalms, he says, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man is preached unto you, the through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That's the summary of his sermon. Yes, it's quoting the prophets. But it's also quoting many of the Psalms and another Psalm because the Psalms sing of Jesus. Beloved, have the Psalms in your personal worship. Have them in your home with family worship and come here and be excited to sing the Psalms knowing you are singing of Jesus because the Psalms sing of Jesus and Jesus can save you from your sins. Let us pray. 
Oh, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word and all of your word and only your word as your revelation, including the book of Psalms, the book of songs that you wrote and put together in one place to be the worship book of the church, Old and New Testament. Lord, I pray that you just impress upon us anew the value of singing only your psalms in worship as we see what we have seen here tonight in Acts 13 and another psalm. All these psalms being quoted. We don't have to apologize. Rather, we can rejoice that we get to sing your psalms inspired by the Holy Spirit about Jesus Christ. The psalms sing of Jesus Lord, as we close, let us sing of Jesus. And we pray in Jesus' name. And all your people said, Amen. Beloved, I think I'd like to keep the psalm we usually close our evening worship with. I'm tempted to go to one of the messianic psalms we've discussed, but I'd like to ask you to turn with me to page 133, because Jesus said all the psalms speak of him. And let's sing Psalm 67, page 133, Psalm 67, as you are able, please stand. Da 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 da. Lord bless and pity us. Shine on us with thy face, that the earth, thy way, and nations all may know thy saving grace. Let saying are being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in Jesus. Now receive the benediction. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. To whom be glory forever 